Hey everybody, welcome to the Climb Forward Podcast. Just a quick reminder, we've got the fundraiser, second annual fundraiser is going on. Go to climb-forward.org forward slash F-U-N. Today's guest is a good buddy of mine, Mark Nicholas. Mark was an FMF corpsman in Iraq. If you don't know what an FMF corpsman is, listen in, he'll tell you all about it. Please join me in welcoming Mark Nicholas to the Climb Forward Podcast. Long Island that's no, been in my yeah, fridge for I'm, fucking I'm forever and it's <laughs> probably gross I'm, by now. I'm good. But seriously, man, uh, thanks for having over, me over to your house, and it's really good seeing you again. Oh, it's it's to be honest, it's an honor to uh, honor to get to sit down with you and take part in what you got going on. So when I asked Mark if he could be on the podcast, like, dude, say when and where. So I'm here, and it's now. <clears throat> so I always start with some basic questions um, to kind of get the ball rolling to hear your story, because that's ultimately what this whole thing is about. So uh, what's your name? Sorry, we already covered your name. Uh, what branch were you in? How long were you in for? And, and what was your job? So I go by Nick. Okay. Um, but yeah. my name is Mark question. Nicholas. I was a corpsman. Um, a lot of people don't really know what a corpsman is. Um, and that's because it's a little convoluted. A lot of people don't know the Marine Corps is actually a part of the Navy. Um, so they use their medical personnel. And I go and get attached with them. I never actually saw a ship once or spent any time with the Navy after boot camp. Lucky. Um, yeah, it depends how you look at it. You know, luck. Bunch of crayon eaters I ended up with instead, oh, but I that love out. them to death. <laughs> yeah, I love Marines. So, but you were an FMF corpsman. I was. Yeah. Can you, can you go? Can you explain that? Can you go through the kind of the core training and then like what you go through to become an FMF corpsman? So when you go, become a corpsman, uh, that's a very broad spectrum. Um, just like anything in the medical world, you always have some kind of specialty. Uh, nobody's just a medic, right? Um, so you'll have dental techs, you'll have OR techs, you'll have all different kinds of specialties. And for me, I ended up FMF, which stands for Fleet Marine Force. Um, so basically what my expertise is, is trauma medicine. Um, so what I do is I go through the boot camp, you go through initial what you call A school, which is the basic medicine uh, equivalent to uh, nursing assistant or something like that, technician. And then you go to your C-School, which is your specialty. Uh, generally, all corpsmen will have a C-School in their contract. I asked for and sought out the FMF contract because, I don't know, I just had that kind of in me. I was looking to get some action in, but I also wanted something to take into the real world after the fact. Um, so I did that, and I figured it was a good way to contribute and be able to take care of my guys out on the battlefield and whatnot. And Yeah, follow that pursuit. I don't regret it at all. There's a lot of reverence that we have for our docs. You know, for us, it's our <clears throat> our combat medics. We just interviewed uh, Jason Mace, and he was in the documentary Restrepo. In fact, Restrepo is named after one of the docs that, that was killed in combat. And I remember at the teams, like, I fucking loved our medics. Like, there's something about someone who majority of their job is to save a life that you just kind of grow attached to, that you have, a, you have that respect for. Was there something early on in life that kind of you think fed into that later on so uh yes and no the specialty not specifically i always kind of had the intent of going into the military no matter what um my great-grandfather stormed the beaches in normandy um he didn't get home until he got he, he got sent home caught tank tank around shrapnel in his left side lost a little bit of his lung didn't die till he was nearly 80 years old from smoking for crying out loud hardy Hardy guy. They don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> no, they don't. And then uh, my grandfather, he was uh, Vietnam. He had two bronze stars, a silver star, the Legion of Merit. 
Um, so there is kind of a lot of like that family lineage to live up to anyways. Um, and then sophomore year, they roll the TV in and I watched the second plane hit the towers and, uh, that kind of solidified like, okay, I'm, I'm going into the military. And at that point I had a full ride scholarship to, uh, to business school, um, through a, uh, distributive education clubs of America program. Um, it's basically a business marketing program, extracurricular type of deal. Um, but I already had my mind made up and yeah, I was good at the business stuff, but like seeing that go down, having the family lineage, all that was really motivating factor. And then when I got to MEPS, which is like the entrance place, you choose your contract, you actually sign the paperwork, take your oath. I wanted to be an MP. I wanted to be police because that's what my grandfather was too. But I was also a troublemaker. Uh, when I was, oh, we know. Yeah, I was also a bit of a troublemaker. I like I like that little bit of rush. So uh, I had a suspended license at the time, and they won't let you be an MP. Um, so my second option was uh, medicine, and I still wanted to get some action in. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll take care of my guys, get out there. And um, that kind of lineage is beaten into you while you're going to school as a corpsman. As you're going through the halls of your school, I mean, the there's it's just lined with pictures of Corman with Medal of Honor and the stories and like what they did, what they went through, um, and it's impressive to say the least. Um, the only time you're allowed to stop in those hallways in schools if you're actually actively reading one of those things, so you see people stopped and just going through and learning it, and then when you get your FMF badge, your warfare qualification. Um, you learn a lot of that lineage and history on the Marine Corps side, and it gets even deeper. So it gets rooted in you that you have a lot to live up to. Um, and I think that's why pretty much every medic or corpsman try to strive and do that. Like, I want to shoot better than my Marines. I want to do all this stuff better than my Marines. I <laughs> we have that. to. We have yeah. to try at least. I, I don't have that title. I, don't, I have that EGA, so i got to earn that bad boy the hard way, you know? I don't, I, don't, I don't have any crucible to go through except for that which the people around me give and uh, you gotta live up to yeah that. you gotta earn it you gotta yeah. get that reputation the guys have to not only like you but they have to respect you oh yeah and it feels good when you earn that respect you know get that brotherhood going how, how soon after 9-11 did you enlist so let's see it was it was a matter of years it was six years because I was a sophomore so no three years I was 19 math's hard right now yeah I feel you dude I don't math very well. I, I joined in 19. Uh, I spent a year... You didn't join to be a mathematician. No, I said, yeah, definitely not. Uh, I'm not an anesthetist. I can, I can, I can do the, uh, the big work, the big interventions, but yeah. then i got to package them up and get them somewhere. To somebody smarter. It's, it's easier that way. Yeah. Easier than math. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I joined in 19. Um, 9-11, yeah. So that was six years. It was six years. Okay. Just under six years. Yeah. So, what was your first deployment? It was in 07, and that was the time of uh, what they call the second push, um, where we kind of flooded into um, the Anbar province. I, I spent my time in the Fallujah Peninsula, uh, which is the area just south of the main city. Um, and it's just this whole area that the Euphrates kind of envelops, and we're in that entire AO area of operation. Uh, this was... Uh, it was kind of a weird time because we were taking the operating bases away from the army because they were having a hard time. Um, they were getting hemmed up a little bit, so then they send us in there, clean up real quick. 
And uh, after that, which we usually do pretty quickly, <laughs> usually over a week, like in Huseba, we did one weekend up where we basically detained every military age male in the in the town um, because we were getting hit by it, or units were getting hit by IEDs every day on Route Michigan and uh, put an end to that real quick. Were you on every mission? I wasn't on every mission. Um, we were shorthanded. There aren't very many corpsmen that end up with these units. Uh, there might be two to three to a company. Um, How big is the company? I don't know, Marines. Like, Marine like about 60 people. Okay. About 60 That's like people. a troop for us. Maybe a little more. Um, and so we would do eight-hour patrols generally and then have somebody on QRF. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you end up awake and, and active for a long, long time. And it can it can get a little rough. How long? But, uh, so, let's see. The worst time I had, um, we had lost. We were waiting on augments, and we were doing double patrols, eight on, eight off. Um, but then QRF got called. I think I slept maybe an hour, and then I got called back out after an eight-hour patrol, and we ended up out there for two days. So that was interesting. I was a little delusional sitting in the back of the Humvee at times, you know. But uh, sure, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. How long was that first deployment? It was uh, 10 months. We got extend- it's usually about eight months for uh, the Marine Corps versus the year or whatever the Army does with the break in between. We don't get a break in between, but it's generally a little shorter. But then, of course, Uncle Sam gives you a little extension of course, whenever they can. So yeah, we ended big up on that. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit longer. How uh, how often did you use your skills that you learned in core school and FMF corpsmen? Oh man, it was it's constant. I mean, even when you're here at, at home, I mean the Marines are oh, yeah. a rowdy bunch, you know. So you always you always gonna <laughs> get it. penises. <laughs> that that amongst other things. Um, luckily, I always had rank, so I had sub- subordinates that I That's could uh, dish yeah. that work off. That's good to. timing. Um, but you do get the, the knock on the door at like 3, 4 a.m. for an IV or for some stitches or something like that. Um, and that's if you aren't out with the guys already anyways. Correct. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and then when you get into, into combat, it just ramps up from there. You know? <laughs> do, you I, mind, do you mind talking about any of that? Are you cool talking about any of that? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, most of... Most of what we had going on, so I, I mentioned QRF, what that is, is quick response force. So what your duty is uh, when you're serving in that capacity is you respond to anything, any action that goes on in your area of operation, whether it be an army convoy, an air force convoy, somebody just traveling through. If they get into any action, it's our responsibility if they call for help to be the ones to show up. Yeah. Um, so... A lot of the times, I was very lucky. People like to have me on their patrols because my patrols, a lot of stuff tend to just not happen. <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that would like, be luck. Yeah, we got in a few small firefights. Um, what when I was the one that was out on the actual patrol, but usually when the big action happened, it was when I was responding as QRF. Um, and there were some yeah, pretty extreme incidents. There's a book written about uh, my unit that goes through a lot of it. Um, from a different company's standpoint. It's called Fallujah Awakens. And um, that goes into our, our more broad mission, but it also goes into some of the uh, more uh, 
chaotic events like a vehicle born IED carrying outfitted with chlorine gas hitting one of the wow. uh, Iraqi police compounds. I'm writing that down for um, Awakens, and I'll put it in the show notes too. Things like that. Um, a lot of people don't realize that it's not just my guys that I got to respond to. Um, part of the capacity we're serving over there is to train the Iraqi police, the Iraqi army, and the local uh, militias that follow the sheiks to work for themselves, to be able to take care of themselves, fight against any kind of insur- insurgency, and just be self-sufficient. Because we wanted to get the hell out of there. You know, We want them to be able to stand yeah. up on their own. Train, That's what train we're them there to for. do our job. Yeah. Um, there's an end point to liberation and that's taking care of your damn self and that's where we want to get them uh, but it's very difficult um, so that that was its own portion of chaos in itself um, but when these guys get hit too we're the ones to respond as well as if any villagers get hit anything like that so you're working on indigenous people as well absolutely that's yeah. most of the work actually really um, yeah even that makes if, sense yeah because we're putting them in there oh yeah even if it's a combatant um, that I put a round into if he's not already gone by the time I get to him then I have to render aid to him that's as well that's right yep we have um, the same requirements yep um, so I mean there's a there's a lot that folks don't consider it's very busy work and then we do like little missions uh, humanitarian missions where we'll literally set up a clinic in town um, just so the townspeople that don't have any health care, because um, that's a situation that they're in, can come and actually get some Advil or Tylenol for their knee aches or headaches or simple stuff like that, which right. they don't have. Sure. Um, and they're super appreciative, but when the insurgency sees them actually taking help from us, they'll target them, and then it becomes another issue because they'll do something like motor or school or something like that and then we have to respond to that and that's what you experienced yeah it's like it's like a give and take it's like yeah I want to help these people but if I'm seen helping these people these people become targets right. if they're accepting it it's like a giant give and take so you see that kind of um, when the attacks happen you see that kind of catastrophe and, and you question hey did I cause this you know, you know? Um, how did our, you deal with that uh, I didn't for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, uh, it eats away at you. The, the, there is, guilt is a very real thing um, when you get out of there. And I think it's the one of the biggest issues that follows vets around is, is their own guilt for events. And it's just a matter of the mind racing and going through everything and going through chain of events and you using the butterfly effect and trying what to is, justify the what how if, it's The what if bandwidth is what we call it. Just beating yourself up. Yeah. Um, and it is. It's tough to get through. Um, and that's why we have such a, a high suicide rate and people just close off. I mean, they talk about the suicide rate, but they don't even include the veterans that got dishonorable discharges or other than honorable discharges because they sought out drugs to to alleviate the symptoms that are presented because of their own PTSD. So those people isolate and don't get involved in the VA system. They're never even tracked. And people forget about those numbers. And that 22 a day is just the people that have honorable discharges and are, and are involved in the VA. It's that simple. So all the people that are left out, which are even more at risk because they got that extra guilt, oh, I didn't serve my God. Dishonorable is a, that's a heavy word to carry around for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? Well, dishonorable requires something pretty heinous. I th- it are does. you thinking of under? 
Although the honorable, honorable okay, is generally yeah. the this honorable that's truck. like a court martial and that, that's a different story altogether. But yeah, I think you mean other than absolutely, yeah. I should have chosen my words differently. Well, even a even a general under honorable conditions can can kind of screw you over. Oh yeah, um, some people have gotten lucky because they've reenlisted and their first term of reenlistment was honorable, but their second term of reenlistment was uh, general under honorable. Yeah. And that can, that, if it weren't for that, like people get screwed out of the GI Bill, mm-hmm. which is a huge saving grace when it comes to transitioning to the next step. It's get, go to school, get a job. Well, now you can't go to school, so you got to get this job, and you got this. And some of them, can they ask? I'm not even sure if they can really mm-hmm. ask. And that's the whole point of uh, some of the underprivileged people getting into the military is to chase down that free school. Yeah, uh, folks always preaching, "I want free school. I want free." We've always had free school. Everybody's always had free school. You just got to do a little bit of work for it. You know what I mean? Um, but then they throw these stipulations in that kids don't usually recognize, like myself. Uh, I took, I had what's called an NCS contract, National Call to Service contract. And it included a bonus. And I'm a kid. I'm like, hell yeah, $1,000. That's awesome. Yes, <laughs> I will take that money. Uh, but there's also a clause in there that I wasn't aware of because I'm 19 years old. I mean... How many, how many people uh, adult age read the terms of agreement? Hell no. Everybody just scrolls through that stuff and hits okay so they can get on with their lives and not read 14 pages. Especially if that's the first amount of money like that that you've seen. I think that's the intent is to kind of blind you with this shiny thing. Yep. But it's just – it's unfortunate, man. They should read through that and make sure, hey, man, if you sign this, then this is what happens. If nothing – forget about the money. Forget about, hey, just sign here. If they're doing that, that's fucked up. Yep. And, and they are doing it. And they are. And what that did was it uh, it made me ineligible for the Montgomery GI Bill. I was fortunate in the in the fact that they made the nine eleven GI uh, Bill yeah. separate legislation in, yeah. entirely. It's even better. So I qualify for that to a certain extent, but I did. I was one of the folks that got messed out of the Montgomery GI Bill, and just out of my own ignorance, taking that bonus as a kid. And it's a uh, yeah, man. That I mean, sucks. you can get mad of it, about it, but the whole system is kind of set up that way to take advantage of, of kids and underprivileged. Well, and, so, so but it not, gives them opportunities as well. So it's like, can I really be mad about it, or do I just deal with it and try to move forward? Well, if your recruiter is honest, and if you have someone in your family that has the wherewithal to encourage you to read through this stuff, or a family member that's been through it can read through it through, for you and let, and warn you about what's going to happen – that can help out, but that doesn't mean that every recruiter is out there to get you. I mean, some are. They just want the quota, they want the numbers, and they assume that your career is going to pan out just fine because theirs is paired out, panned out just fine mm-hmm. without any sort of intent to actually help you. And that's that's highly unfortunate. You always get a few bad apples. I like my recruiter is pretty good. I uh, I don't have any ill will. He he didn't submit some paperwork that would have given me an extra rank in boot camp, so I was a little well, irritated. That's that. <laughs> like that's, I was I was a little irritated good. about that, but I mean that was a, a clerical error and, and it wasn't a bad. Yeah. But I was also I mean I came up in bad situation. I came up with a single mother that was running with. Uh, God knows who, I won't get into that, but yeah. doing not so great things. I was exposed to police breaking into the door. I lived in shelters. I've gone through all that. Um, so like the, uh, the military was a real opportunity. Um, but at the same time I was, after I got out of school, I spent that year getting, getting reckless and partying <laughs> and getting into the whole mess. Right. And, uh, and my recruiter was good enough to, to be able to get to that base level and realize that, hey, I can actually help these people. And they're generally, I mean, we like to think we're all unique. 
but we're not. Oh, yeah. Everybody is right. the damn same. We Except all, we me. all go kidding. through this stuff. Unless you're born with that silver spoon. Those folks are a little <laughs> bit different. Um, but we generally all go through the same struggles. And my recruiter recognized that. I mean, he knew right. I, I told him right off the bat I was going to fail my drug test. He's like, all right, well, we'll deal with that later. He's like, we just need to get you a clean test for MEPS and we'll square everything else away. He's like, and, I need that number, so I'll take care of you. It benefits him, but it also is like, <laughs> this, this is going to give you structure. You. It's going to improve your life. Absolutely. And you know what? Those are the people you want on the battlefield is those reckless folks that are going to get out there and not be timid and, and are willing to learn new things. And if, if they have the capacity, you know, there's a lot of wasted talent out there. That's what I was going to ask is the your nature is to be risk averse is what it sounds like, at least for the most part. Maybe not now since you're a, a, a wise old man. But for a while there as a young and like you were exposed to that chaos. So that was probably somewhat normal to you. Would you agree or my coming up definitely prepared for me for the military. I definitely had more resilience than a lot of folks um, that I was out there with. That being said, I also every time I left the wire, which means we're going outside our base into the danger zone, so to speak, um, I doubted myself every single time. I always knew that I didn't know enough, but at the same time, once I got out there and I had to perform, it was almost like an out-of-body type of deal and something took over and I always did well and, and, and performed to my utmost potential. When that something took over, what did that feel like? It's it's hard to describe because you can only look back at it. Yeah, I can't really, because in the moment, it's almost like a blackout. You know, I don't... I don't really remember a lot of the more extreme actions that I went through except for the stories that I've heard or things like that, the discussions after the fact. Right. So it's like you try to look back at it in retrospect, and that's kind of the out-of-body experience. And um, it's funny because uh, I've been getting into some of the Bwiti ceremony and culture. Uh-huh. Yeah. Talk about plant medicine. Plant medicine. Yeah. And what they're... Their culture is basically surrounded for this plant that is meant to get you in touch with your ancestors so that you can um, get rid of whatever is not serving you in your life. Talk about iboga. Iboga. Yeah. Basically, it allows you to have a discussion with people that have already gone through this stuff. In my mind, that's the way it works. Um, And when it comes to DNA and genealogy and that that feeling that people have in that back of their head, I'm convinced that that's kind of your ancestors having experienced some portion of whatever moment you're going through and trying to guide you in a, in a good direction because that experience is literally in your genetic code. Have you done it yet? Uh, not entirely. Um, I'm, I'm, going my, I'm going to my <laughs> second, second uh, ceremony in okay. a couple of weeks. Um, so I'm super excited about that, but I'm serving in a medical capacity. Okay. Um, so my first time, it was just basically oversight. I didn't have to do much. They handled it very well. Uh, some of the impi- insights that they got, uh, my patients got, were very uh, profound. Yeah, um, yeah, for they, sure, man. I've heard the experiences, and it's like the experiences I heard were it, it, it kind of covers the gamut of the spiritual experience, but more or less they're shown. It's all symbolic. It's all things that mean something, say, to me if I'm under it. Uh, but I couldn't explain, you know, what it is. Like they'll go through it, and some of them are they can they have like a rolodex, and they can fast they can rewind back in time, and observe actual experiences 
but with a different perspective mm-hmm. and that, that like is part of the healing process. So I think with each one, it's, it's just a little bit different. Absolutely. And, and that's really what it is because we only know the world from our own perspectives. Just like everybody you meet have a different picture of you because yeah. they've only seen one little section of you. Right. So when you get that access that I'm convinced is literally in our DNA and that just allows us to open the window, yeah. um, we're able to get all those other per- perspectives and therefore get a little more insight into what is or isn't serving our lives and, and address that issue. And also with perspective, I think, comes understanding. It becomes like a search for knowledge and knowledge kind of combats all of this, the, the shit that I had you know, with my limited perspective, which mm-hmm. is you know, getting angry about certain things, but not really understanding why, you know, having these personal issues, but not understanding why I keep repeating these things. And to get like a zoomed out experience of that was, was very freeing and Mm -hmm. very informative and like, okay, like I can kind of just handle this. So it's actually really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm excited because, um, so I've been getting familiarized with the plant, um, in a way, by way of microdosing. And I, I, we're doing that because I'm serving as basically an apprentice in Ganga, apprentice shaman. Um, so they're working me up to the induction. And from what I understand, you're taking a little bit more than the regular ceremonies. So you can get very sick. And uh, yeah. once once I'm ready, they'll they'll let me know. And, uh, and then I'll go through the full experience myself. What's great about this, especially knowing you and, and you know, like, I don't want to get into your story for you, but, you know, it, it sounds like purpose. Sounds like having a new purpose and contributing something and like growing spiritually as well as personally. So yeah, I, so you mentioned we talk about perspective, right? And uh, the most eye-opening moment in my life was actually getting to Iraq and experiencing the people and the culture. Um, I never realized how ignorant I was sitting in the American bubble, which recently popped, and, and it will <laughs> that's going that way uh, but we did we had a nice cushy bubble over here and a lot of people don't realize that the rest of the world simply isn't like America and, and Europe um, it's, it's nothing like that I mean I've, I've been a part of riots because gasoline's only delivered uh, once a month and these people need gasoline in order to make their livelihoods or, or get to wherever or get their family members from a different city or, or whatever like something some simple like that and they stress out so bad about it. We've never had to deal with any of that. We're, we're very grateful. I mean, we'll have gas shortage every once in a while. I mean, it's we're not perfect, and America's not perfect, and nobody's saying that. But we we really have a lot to be grateful for. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this is this is. I won't say it's the greatest country to grow up in or live in, um, but it's amongst them. It's in the, in the it's in the top. There are, there are some improvements I could see made with like healthcare and stuff like that, and the way we treat some of the underprivileged. Um, but that's kind of the way capitalism works. And uh, and no matter what, what we have over here that isn't in the rest of the world is opportunity. Like if you have that motivation and you're ready to get up and go get it, you can here. That opportunity isn't available in in the desert and in Iraq and stuff like that. Um, not as in the abundance that it is here. Right. Yeah, Johnny Walker writes extensively about this in his book, Cold Name Johnny Walker. And it's just about that. It's about specifically, the, the first half of it is about opportunities. And the opportunity that he had to work with the Navy SEALs and how that changed everything for him. So, But going back to your uh, first Iraq experience, what was it like coming back from that? 
Coming back, uh, it's kind of a, I mean, it's just as much of a shock as going to Iraq. Um, you're in this mode, and it's, so we got this whole police thing going on here here in the States, and I've always said, because um, this issue, it comes up all the time, um, and I always, in the back of my head, think, like, when I was in Iraq, our rules of engagement, like, if somebody pointed a weapon at me, we cannot shoot. Everybody there owns an AK-47, if not something bigger. Wow. Everybody. There are no gun laws. There's generally at least one weapon per household. They do carry them around out in the open. Um, so you never really know who your enemy is going to be and everybody's potential. Until they pull a trigger, I cannot fire at them. If they pull the trigger and turn and run away and are no longer pointing a weapon at me, I cannot fire at them. We have to chase them and pursue them. So our rules of engagement were more strict than the police force here at home. Um, so I come back home and I'm in that like high level state where everybody is a threat. You know what I mean? And we go through what they call decompression. But I mean, it's just like, it's two weeks of going and watching PowerPoint presentations of how not to drunk drive and roll your car over a kid. And they show these heinously violent videos just to like beat it into your head, which is like, would traumatize a child if, if they were to see it. Right. You know, so they're just exposing you to more video trauma after coming home and calling it decompression. That's fascinating. <laughs> and then uh, I was 3-6, or what's called a victor unit. So um, I guess the Army would equate it to a rapid deployment unit. So we spend less time at home than we do overseas. So we'll, we'll do the eight-month or however long deployment, come back, you got the little decompression phase, one month block for leave to go home, and then you go right back into training within a couple yeah. months. Yep. You do your workup, get one more month to go home, and then you deploy again. Um, so it's real quick. Um, I was at the point where they wanted to put me on a desk. That's why I left my active duty unit. Um, but they they ended up doing they did a, a pretty easy deployment as far as I'm aware at. Uh, Al-Assad, which is a big base. and then, uh, But then they went to the Battle of Marjah. So even like leaving and seeing your unit go into a big battle, a real battle like that, um, you get that same guilt, you know? Like, I, I have this capacity. I know I can do it. Why the fuck aren't I there? You know? Why do they want to put you at a desk? Um, I had some injuries to my back, and I was getting to the rank uh, HM2 where you generally get pulled off the line oh, company okay. for me. Generally, I, I mean, I just had the experience and they wanted me to be a mentor and a resource, but I don't, that's not I, like, I want to be a resource for my Marines, not my subordinate corpsman. Right. You know, I was kind of maybe misguided looking back, misguided, selfish in a, in a way. Well, I think you bonded with the Marines. Absolutely. You went to war with them. But at the same time, looking back, I could have given my knowledge and my capacity to perform to and pass it on. Maybe the next FMF quarter. Yeah. And I kind of regret not doing that. They, they, I did sign re-enlistment papers. Yeah. But of course, they, lose, they lost it. They lost your re-enlistment They, lo- they lost my re-enlistment. Yeah. It's something you never heard of before. I, they lost my signed re-enlistment papers. Um, but during that interim, 
I had one of those episodes where one of the Marines came to me for stitches and he was hammered drunk and underage and he really needed to go to the hospital. It was a bad avulsion, which is like a V-shaped uh, wound, open wound on his hand. Um, and your hand, is the nerves and stuff, it's sketchy to just go at it. So you should have a surgeon do it, admittedly. But knowing that he's underage, I wanted to keep him from going to captain's mast because that's what would have happened. Right. He would have gotten punished for being hammered drunk and injuring himself, which he is government property at the time because that's what you are when you're in the military you're no longer a person you are property you're no longer your own yep so he he damaged government property which is a crime in itself so he could have got charged with that too uh, so I stitched him up in my room and um, of course he had to come and get him removed so it did get found out after after a bit it did work its way up the chain of command yeah. I took credit for it because I like to do that. I'm, I'm always the one to stand up and be like, I did it, even uh, if I didn't. Reference risk averse. I'll take it. <laughs> um, but honest. Honest. I mean, it's like, look, like you played a part in it, and it's just you admitted to it. And I felt like that's my job. It and is, it, yeah. It went both ways when it came to my command. Uh, my HM2, which is my like direct supervisor, he was very hard on me. He's yelling at me, calling me a dirtbag. He's like, what did you do, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you know better than this. You're supposed to bring him to the hospital. And then I go to my chief, Chief Rabana. I'll never forget him. He's like, biggest Filipino I've ever seen. Got machine guns tattooed on his on his arms. And he, I seen him, he's a kickboxer. I seen him kick a heavy bag and just see that thing swing almost up to the ceiling. He's scary. A, yeah, he's a Kickboxing machine. scary. And that was my chief corpsman. Um... I went to him and he's like, he's like, he's like, you know what I gotta say to you, right? I'm like, yes, chief. He's like, he's like, but you know, dude, good job, right? I'm like, <laughs> yes, chief. And then he's like, all right, go ahead and act like I, I gave you a chewing out. He's like, like, so like, it goes both ways. Yeah, it's there's something I always liked about someone who's willing to break the rules or at least bend the rules, not for stupid shit, right? But to like help somebody out. And I don't know. I feel like it's too bad they didn't hook you up with that. They. They tried to, yeah. But I was okay. because of my interaction with my HM two because I had to go back to him directly after that bad interaction to have him ask me if he I could sign reenlistment paperwork. So this all happened at once, oh, <laughs> and wow. I was not happy with him. So I'm like, go go fuck yourself. I don't, I'm not doing it. So they lost your reenlistment papers. Did they ever find them? No. <laughs> Did they ever create new ones? No. So you just didn't no. reenlist. No. I so. The NCS contract, the way it works is you do a stint active duty time and then you do a stint reserve time. Okay. How long was that stint? Uh, it ends up being a total of six years. Ended up being a total of about six years. Just under. Okay. Um, and that's because of extensions and what's not. It's supposed to be a two-year, con- a four-year contract. Well, they're all eight. Um, but four years active and working and then the four years inactive yeah. that everybody serves. So it's 2013 and you're out. Yeah, I got out in uh, 2000. Yeah, yeah, two, yeah. Math, mathematics. That math again. So what was that like? Just getting out. Yeah, just getting out. What was your? Because I was reckless that's a, that's as hell. A, I was still chasing down that adrenaline. You know, adrenaline's the best drug in the world, man. <laughs> it's the best thing ever. So I I got out and uh, I was reckless. I was chasing that down. I started abusing my body and not treating myself in the best way. Yeah. Um, still wanted that action and at the same time I'm, I'm in the reserves and I'm earning medals for training the whole unit combat lifesaver and sure. stuff and 
I mean, I only did that because I was paranoid. The reserves is a very... I, I came from a very good, well-trained unit. <laughs> right, yeah. So when I get out to the reserves and I'm doing close-quarters combat training and seeing these guys trip over themselves and stuff like that, I'm like, well, what can I control in this environment? Yeah. I can teach them. I can teach them how to treat themselves. Have they been taught that before? No. Generally, they. Uh, I think they're starting to make it more commonplace for all Marines to become combat lifesavers. Okay. Which is just like giving them the knowledge of basic life-saving interventions to give me more time to get there and address the situation, get them packaged up and ready to go. Um, so putting tourniquets on, how to, how to do the needle thoracentesis, uh, put a, a two-way valve on a, a chest wound, stuff, simple stuff like that. Uh, proper application of a bandage, how to use their quick clot, because if they don't know how to use, use a quick clot, it just floods out like kitty litter, you know? So just simple stuff, but if you have this, these tools and you don't know the technique to use them, then they're pretty much useless. Right, you know? yeah. Um, stuff like that. But yeah, the reserves and active duty were a very different environment. So I was reckless outside because you're only doing one week a month. Yeah. I mean, one weekend a month. So it's hard to really be serious about, about the military when it's only one weekend a month. Right. Um, and that en- ended up ca- catching up with me, and I was one of the ones that ended up with... Uh, and other than honorable, and it was honestly just because I was chasing that stuff down. I was bored out of my mind. Um, I didn't. I was not aware of the PTSD. I had not addressed any of the issues that I came back home with. Um, didn't recognize that that's kind of where everything was stemming from, along with my own childhood traumas and everything like that. I had never addressed all that stuff that made me resilient and sure. made me able to to perform in battle yeah which is some to get you to that level of resilience it's you go through a little bit of stuff and it also has a dark side it's, right. it comes from a dark side yeah it does there's no two ways about it and uh, how you deal with it is really the issue because I mean a lot of the times when when kids experience um, these kinds of trauma and stuff they end up growing up and being serial killers school shooters mass shooters whatever Whatever the case may be, um, sounds like you, sounds like bullying. Were you bullied? No, I was never really bullied. Okay, um, maybe I, just pushed aside. By yeah, anything. no, I had a in my developing years. Um, I mean, I, like I said, my mother was involved in whatever she was involved with. Uh, lots of drug activity, so I had that going on. Didn't really recognize it initially, but then when I was young. Uh, my uncle, close family member, committed suicide. Wow. Um, so at that point, I just kind of shut down. I wasn't really bullied, uh, but I wasn't... I, I just didn't really talk to many people. How old were you? Uh, 12 years old wow. when, when that young. happened. That's so young. Um, and he was like the main father figure in my life, too. Oh, great. So that was... Yeah, it, it was... It impacted me probably in a way that, that I didn't even realize at the time, especially being young. But I shut down, didn't really want to talk to anybody, moving around all the time. Um, so the like middle school through late junior year of high school, I was just isolate. I just didn't really talk to anybody. I was going through having to live in trailers and, and deal with these people and deal with all this stuff. And I was all then at the end, I started getting into and participating in it myself. Um, so it was really an environment that I needed to escape from. So it's good that my recruiter did the work with me and recognized and got me that structure. Sure. It was also beneficial. You know. Very much so. 
So what was it like? What were your first steps getting out? Or what were your next steps getting out? So you're no longer in the reserves. You've served all your, your time. <clears throat> what did you do? I mean, I went right into medicine. Okay. Um, despite my skills, unfortunately, when you go into the civilian world, you don't have that magical piece of paper called a diploma. And only certain colleges even recognize military credits, especially at that time. Many more do now these days than when I got out. Um, so what I did in Massachusetts, they allow you to challenge either the EMT basic or medical assistant boards. So I did the medical assistant board, got into medicine. I ended up working for several urgent cares. I ended up, um, working for Tufts cardiology. Tufts is a pretty prestigious hospital up in Boston. It was actually founded by one of our founding forefathers, Sam Adams. And so that's pretty cool to be able to go and see the original building and school and all that stuff. Um, so that was an honor. I worked for the VA for a little while to meet some amazing people. I met one of the flight crew members of the Enola Gay. Oh, I cool. met a man that fought at Chosen Reservoir. So that was pretty cool to, to get to meet those characters. And uh, But I, that's pretty much what I did when it comes to my professional life. But I was also on the side dealing drugs and getting reckless and doing drugs and chasing all that down. The same patterns as when you were a kid. Yep, uh, same pattern that I was edging into as a kid and yeah. escaped. But uh, I got home and still wanted all that action, so it felt good, you know, um, getting out there and breaking people down and getting into the mix and having some fun, you know, riding down a dirt road on the top of an SUV going 60 miles an hour while you're on drugs. You know, it's fun. <laughs> you get that adrenaline dump on top of everything else. How long did you do that for? Uh, until, uh, until it almost killed me, basically. Um, I had a major surgery when in 2009 on my neck. I ended up, I was trying to get into Customs Border Protection. I went through all my interviews, uh, got accepted, was getting ready to go to boot camp, and my right arm just like stopped working. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally was working at a Cumberland Farms putting milk away, and I couldn't, all of a sudden, I went from one to the other and just couldn't pick it up. Couldn't pick up a gallon of milk past my waist. Uh, so I had to get surgery, a fusion on my neck to alleviate that issue. And, of course, I lost a job for Customs Board of Protection. I was still active, luckily. Um, my rehab, uh, the reason I recovered so quickly is actually because I was still in the military. I went through what's called McQuist School, which is Marine Corps Safety Swim Instructor School, which is one of the harder swim schools that are in the Marine Corps because it's an instructor class. Um, and I was supposed to be the safety corpsman, not participating. But I decided to get in the pool anyways. I'm like, hell with it, because I still got that same attitude. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what my Marines are doing until it takes away my capacity to do my work. Yeah. And uh, getting in that pool and actually going through that training with those guys, that rehab, really was phenomenal. Um, how long did it take for you to get feeling back in your arm? Feeling back in my arm? Well, how about total use of your arm? So I noticed I, the feeling and more strength in my arm as soon as I woke up from anesthesia, immediately. I think one of the first things that came out of my mouth, well, my potassium was crashing. So I, I looked at the nursing assistant and told her my potassium was crashing. 
And she's like, oh, I'll get you some Ativan. I know you're probably anxious. I'm like, no, I'm not anxious. My potassium's crashing because <laughs> I got a medical history. <laughs> she didn't believe me. And then I started seizing. She's like, oh, maybe I should get a nurse. Nurse came. She's like, his get- potassium's <laughs> crashing. <laughs> and then gave me what I asked for in the first place. Oh, man. Uh, but then I was like, wow, uh, my arm feels so much better. I, I automatically had like probably 75% of the strength back, wow. um, which was pretty amazing. So it definitely does a lot of good. Um, I got to a pretty severe point. I wouldn't recommend doing infusion to anybody. Um, but there are some other interventions, stem cells, just stuff like that. It should really be done first. But for me, I was kind of in that position where it needed to be done. Um, so, But part of that is you get a lot of opiates. You know, I was uh, in the hospital for over two weeks after my surgery my orders were to be in bed for like three months or something obscene like that that I would never be able to do. Um, and they put me on a, a lot of opiates, uh, which I became addicted to. Um, then the whole thing happened with the VA where they just cut everybody off. They had a sudden policy change, and instead of weaning people down, they just cut off supply. What was that like? Well, you go into severe withdrawals. Um, and when I'm working and trying to run a floor in an urgent care or trying to take care of my patients at cardiology office like I feel guilty if I have to call in you know and not be able to be there to take care of my patients so it feels like shit plus I'm throwing up and 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 take and shitting all over myself because I'm in withdrawal so it doesn't feel good all around so you end up going to seek out your medication elsewhere right um, out on the street so that's what I did and it gets very expensive I was spending over a hundred dollars a day when I wasn't uh, just dealing them to to pay for my own habit. Um, I never ended up turning to to heroin or using needles just because of my own aversion to not knowing dosages. I think it's just because of my medical training sure. and not be not wanting to mess with anything that somebody could manipulate. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's the same thing. I was an opiate addict. It, it, I ended up getting to the end of my rope. I was suicidal. Um, I was in a very, very dark, bad place, living in a, in a little studio apartment in, in a slum, basically. Um, I was in a really bad spot. I was that cliche veteran that it, people talk and hear about that come back and just end up being on drugs, fucking becoming a hermit, staying inside and, and doing all that. Um, self-abuse. That must be so frustrating because, I mean, that clearly isn't you, right? So to become someone that you're not, it just must have been a nightmare. Right, but you don't realize that at the time. And actually, it took another uh, (laughs) plant therapy experience to gain that perspective. Um, And that actually kind of changed my outlook on everything. And that's, I credit that as a there's a lot of catalysts you look back at, at your life and be like that was a point where things kind of took a change um, I had a DMT experience and through that simple change of perspective um, I like to say that even in that short time maybe 10 minutes maybe that's a high that's a like long estimate in that 10 minute experience um it was like I spent my whole life in a dark room and suddenly somebody turned the floodlights on and I could see everything in the room. Do you remember the experience? I, I do. Can you describe it? So, electric Nintendo land? All right. Initially. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, 
imagine like a crazy video game artwork landscape that is you're rushing through almost like you know the way they do warp speed in the stars the old way they do that Mm -hmm. so all these colors rushing at you in that way is like was my initial sight and my first thought is oh my god this needs to be looked at more this needs to be studied more like this simple thing can change everything I'm looking at that just makes me think of the brain as a, a, a radio and somebody just took the tuner and spun it real quick and changed the channel on me and I'm like oh damn I can see something new now and uh, it's a very strange experience that alone um, much less and I mean it sounds crazy but it's a common experience you, you people talk about and I had an actual conversation not out loud um, but in my mind with some other kind of entity whatever it might have been I can't tell you what shape or form it was in or anything it was just electric Nintendo land and this entity Um, but you basically you're having this experience which is incredible in the first place and changes your perspective anyways but then there's this entity that you can get insight from and the fact that more than just me have this experience makes me feel a little better you know because I'd feel like a psychopath if I was I did this and just had a conversation with some entity that wasn't there and came out talking like that like that's schizophrenia right there that's how we diagnose schizophrenia short term multiple personality <laughs> disorder you know Very short term uh, but it's a common experience so um, that like there needs to be more science behind that and that's why I do have a passion for plant medicine so MAPS is really leading the charge that's multi multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies they're actually leading the charge in a lot of the stuff they're the ones getting MDMA uh, approved for FD, or FDA approval and so I, if you haven't checked out that site I definitely would maps.org they're doing that they're doing uh, they got a the new stuff. ketamine trials yeah well ketamine's already legal yep uh, the, the microdosing for depression has had substantial results yep like treatment treatment resistant depression yeah um, and that's something that has almost no effects and you go through a, a little bit of therapy uh, while you're on it and you have it's a microdose it's like it's something you hardly even feel and it's controlled it's in a very very controlled environment I think they put uh, an eye mask and music on and they monitor you the whole time and it takes several treatments from what I understand but they've also got like a nasal spray that they that they FDA approved yeah I saw I I don't know a lot about that but I saw that and I I mean it gives me fuel to the fire you know because that there's hope Absolutely, because I mean, I was at a point where the only reason I didn't kill myself is because I didn't want anybody finding me with my service dog eating me. That was that was my base justification. Yeah, <laughs> that was like the bottom line that I had come to. If the dog wasn't there, I wouldn't be here now. Right. Um, but then I had this experience, and um, I realized I was sick of myself, just like you were saying before. Yeah. Like I know what I'm capable of. I know that I haven't even reached my peak capacity. I'm I'm just getting to the ages where I should be at my peak capacity. Like what the hell am I doing to myself? What have I become? Like I have all these abilities. I've been such a great resource to so many people. I have such a passion for helping other people. Why the fuck can't I help my damn because self? Because that's addiction. Yeah. That's what addiction does to people. Because, I mean, even even these days, because you, you still get the mental issues, like I've, I've gotten over the opiate addiction. I've been off of opiates since October of 18, 
and that's great, but you still got the, the mental issues too. So even now with all this stuff going on, I'm quick to help other people out. Somebody says they need a mask. Somebody says they need some resources. Somebody yeah. says they're, they're running out of money, even if I'm broke. Like I try to help out. Like I'm quick to do that, but doing my own stuff, calling the VA, trying to get my dog a vet appointment. Like I'm terrible at doing stuff for myself. Dude, I'm the exact same way. Myself. I, I, I care more for others than sometimes I do for myself. Huh. Yeah, I, I get that. And then we end up in this position where you've wasted away so much you don't even have the capacity to do what you want to do for other people. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that's so common that we tend to care for others more than ourselves? So for me, a great way to – so going back, Restrepo, right? Uh, one of the uh, journalists, war correspondent that was there is now Sebastian Younger. Younger yeah. Wrote a book called Tribe. All right, I, I rooted all to tribalism. If you want to take care of your people, that's kind of how we all survive. If you go back to the indigenous times when we were legit just tribes, um, you had to take care of one another in order to survive. If you took care of only yourself, then not only are you're, you're alienated from the tribe because they don't they don't want you around if you're not doing anything to contribute to the group. So I think that's like going back to just recognizing that it's in our genes. It's literally a part of our amygdala, that instinct to help others because it's tribalism. And to not do so creates anxiety. It creates guilt. And it even, does. even shame. In it, some cultures, it's shame. Absolutely. But what we find in, say, like countries like Japan is people work themselves to death because it's not this individual men, uh, mentality. It's the group mentality. They literally work themselves to death. So I think there's definitely a boundary that can be set but again for us I think it's it's hard I don't do it to that extent but I have been burnt out just going oh hard just working so hard and literally pass out on deployment and just like everything that just changed my brain man like things have been different since then mm -hmm. and you're an, an inspiration like you always got all these big crazy awesome projects going on like but it's, but it's all geared towards like helping other people that's the only thing that makes this like an awesome project to me right and that's it, make, it makes you more passionate about oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I could do this all day long. But it but impresses I'll cut you off in an hour. Because <laughs> the, the motivation that you have to do that, yeah. it, it, it inspires other people. Well, good. Um, just like uh, looking at Jocko, it's like people like, yeah. uh, of course, Joe Rogan, obviously. Right. Um, I mean, anybody that's passionate about just getting their opinion out there, being open, being honest, and trying to just get information out there. It's motivating and it's inspiring and I it's a big deal. I have to put myself in check because like sometimes I, I segue into telling my story and I don't mean to do that, but in previous podcasts I, I kind of have <clears> – <throat> I just want people to learn from my experiences because I've fucked up quite a bit. That's just the honest to God truth. I've fucked up quite a bit and you know everyone's like, well, I'm not perfect. Um, I just want people to like hear that story and like if that's you, you're not alone and there, there is help. There's hope you know, and that's why I love hearing your story and the stories of – I mean, Jason Wood's different. That guy's a freak. <laughs> he's, did you hear the – if you listen to the podcast, Jason was the first one, and he's just super resilient, and even he had struggles, right? But he's just like a really solid dude, like a really good dude all around. Um, they all are. They're all really good people. And that's the basis of, of – you mentioned it earlier. We're all more or less like one person to the next. We mean to help people. We mean to be helpful. And sometimes we have either this confluence of experience and sometimes it leads to one thing or another that's ineffective and it kind of changes us. It's not who we really are. It changes how we act. It changes how we perceive. It changes how we react to the world. 
And that needs to be change if we're if we're so inclined. That can be treatment. That can be plant medicine. That can be meditation. That can be therapy. I suggest that if you're listening to this, you should have therapy. I suggest therapy for everybody. I get it every single week, and it's one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, it's one of the things I've been deficient on, but getting more into, and I'm glad I have, because um, even with sobriety from opiates, um, like I said, there's still all the mental issues that are going on, and now when it comes to a pandemic all these uh, BLM, Antifa, like wars, media wars, and all this stuff, and all this uh, division amongst my people, my countrymen, that's, that causes a lot of anxiety, especially amongst the, the warrior class. Because, I mean, my mother and my grandmother are on the other side of the country. Okay, right now they're in Massachusetts. But you got to realize... All of us, the 1%, the military, the, the war fighters, the people that wanted to go and help. I mean, we went and liberated a country. I don't, know, I don't even know those people. I don't know their culture. I don't know nothing. But I went and fought for their liberty. And now all this stuff is going on and like they're infringing a little bit of that stuff. And especially with some of the ways the media portrays everything, you get anxious. You start to squirrel up. You start to, oh, start, start to hoard things. You start to prepare because you're like, okay, now I'm starting to go in the warfare environment again, and you start to enter into that mental state, and that's not healthy. That's not a good thing, because that's where you had to recognize and work yourself out of in the first place, is that that stance, that fighting stance. Like You're no longer, with all this stuff going on, in a relaxed position. You're not sitting down anymore. Everybody's in a fighting stance. And uh, I think that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. I know I'm really bad at reaching out to my brothers. I have, I know, I have Marines all across the country that I know if I was in a bad situation, needed a couch to crash on, whatever the hell else, needed somewhere to run, whatever the hell it may be, if I hit them up, they're going to be there for me. But at the same time, just like you and I, we shell up, we stay to ourselves, yeah. and it's just our nature. It's because that's who we are. Yeah. Um, but it's unhealthy. Oh, it's and I say we yeah. need to recognize it. But I'm also a hypocrite because I don't do it myself. Um, but it is something that needs to be addressed. I'm glad uh, I've seen Warrior's Heart doing things like uh, open sessions, therapy sessions, uh, group talk sessions for first responders and military, which is awesome. And I'd, I'd like to see some more of that. Um, how did you get off opiates? I got off opiates through uh, Warrior's Heart, actually. The, uh, the plant medicine experience, that was just a catalyst to changing my mindset. I still had to take action sure. and, uh, and actually address the issues. So first I went through the VA, and that was not a good experience. Um, they're actually in the news right now, the VA that I actually was at, uh, the building next door actually, the Bedford VA, because they found a veteran that had been missing for three days at the bottom of his stairwell, and he lived there. He was missing for three days. <laughs> yeah. That in itself is unbelievably ridiculous. You think they'd look there? Yeah, you have check-ins. Like, people come from meds. You should notice when somebody doesn't show up, you know. Um, I, myself, I, I went through... I started my rehabilitation there. Um, the second I got there, they increased um, the Suboxone that I had already weaned myself down to. Of course, I'm a drug addict. You offer me more drugs, I'm going to take them. 
Um, they also put me on benzos, so they gave me an additional addictive substance, wow. which would cover up the PTSD symptoms that I'm supposed to be there to treat in the first place. And if you're covering something up, you can't treat it. And what year was this? This was, 2000, when was it? 2017, okay. I believe. It was either 2017 or early 2018. Um, Has it changed since then? Do you know? The VA? Well, no. Well, that, I mean, that aspect of it. Hell no. Not as far as I'm aware. I mean, this that news story was only, only like three weeks ago, a month ago. Yeah. Um, in my experience there, not only did I have that treatment experience where they started that, but uh, they decided they... I, w I had gone there, and it was supposed to be a three-month stay. My lease was up, too. And since I was going to be there for three months, I'm not going to get a new lease, right? I'm going to wait until I'm getting out and get a new place. But they decided they didn't have a doctor available when I was about two months in for the cognitive processing therapy that I was supposed to go through. So they were going to discharge me early, essentially rendering me homeless two weeks before my payday, which is always the first of the month. And when I haven't been working for a couple months. So they're going to put you in that position willingly. Um, not only that, but it put me in a state of mind where I became suicidal again yeah. while I was in treatment. I decided that I was going to leave the dog. I, I had my service dog Libby still, and, and she was in treatment with me. And I, I decided I was going to leave her there and drive off the bridge. Um, I was up the road, had a perfect little embankment ramp where I could drive right up. And I went and got a tooth pulled and I saw that and I was like, all right, deal. Looks like, looks, looks like a good deal. That'll take care of the business. Wow. Um, but that morning I woke up, I was one of the first ones to get up. I went and, uh, took a leak in the bathroom and out the window I saw, uh, one of the guys I knew, Maureen, hanging in a tree. I went downstairs, told the nursing staff, um, that he had killed himself and they're, uh, their reply was just totally insensitive, like run of the mill. Oh, it happened again. They were like, "Oh man, oh, security patrol must not have caught him." That's messed up. I mean, I know what bodies look like. I've seen bodies before. Sure. He was not. It was not recent. He had been hanging there for hours. There was no security patrol going around. So I, I was furious. Um, so I started putting things in a little messaging service called My Healthy Vet. Um, you have the ability to put things in your permanent record. So I started listing off my complaints and using words like negligence and stuff in the permanent VA record. And they don't like that, the doctors at the VA and the directors at the VA. I would imagine not. Yeah. Permanent record, yeah. And when you get somebody with medical expertise that actually knows what they're talking about and has worked for the VA knows how to use that system, I had the experience to really have some shots fired and use my artillery. What effect did that have? That effect, I ended up sitting down with three directors of three different um, departments in the VA. Um, and essentially this was all because it ha the same thing that happened to me happened to a friend that was a Marine too. Wow. So I was trying to take care of him more than I was trying to take care of myself. Of course. But through this, I ended up making an acquaintance and uh, she knew a man named Tom Spooner. And she said, I think you'll be a great fit for this program. VA Choice is a, a, a legislation that will allow you to get private health care um, through them. It's called Warrior's Heart. It's founded by a guy named jo uh, Josh Lannon and uh, Tom Spooner, partners, and uh, and they do they do it right. They do it the right way. Um, 
they take veterans in, they take first responders in, everybody that's had direct involvement with any kind of trauma. Um, it's dual diagnosis admission, so you have to have PTSD and substance abuse issues specifically, which almost always go hand in hand. Um, and the first thing they do is they take you off of everything, which you can't treat anybody without having a clear baseline. Yeah, they, that's they have a detox. Exactly. Yeah, they don't just cold turkey you. No, you're yeah. you're in a nice, comfy environment, Very. beautiful area, deer all around, exotic deer all around, exotic animals, beautiful sunsets, the hills, hill country of Texas. Absolutely, it's hard boring. to leave. <laughs> it's it's like a resort. They get a beautiful pool, like a nice rec room, everything, leather couches. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. Um, so you're nice and comfy. You go through your detox. They help you through that. And they, they have the greatest therapists there that um, just have an amazing level of experience with not only your issues, but the veteran and first responder um, people, the warrior class, essentially. Because EMTs, police, like that's the yeah. part of the warrior class, Absolutely, too. Yeah. Those people that have that resilience to be able to deal with everybody's worst days, because that's what they do, is they show up for everybody's worst days. Um, those are the warrior class. Dude, I've met some of the smartest and most capable people. People with 30 years EMT experience. We have SWAT experience. We have Navy SEALs. We have uh, DevGru. We have CAG. We have all these, uh, the whole smattering of the military and first responders. That's who goes there. That's who needs help. And they get it. Yeah, and this place, and you're right. Um, there were some people that I really looked up to, too. Yeah. Um, at some points, I felt like I didn't belong. I'm like, I'm here with a bunch of like Navy SEALs and Delta and all these, all these crazy operator guys, <laughs> and I'm just lowly corpsman over here. And I'm like, damn. I'm like, do I even belong here? Yeah. Do, do I even have like the, the same issues? And By that time, we're also fucked up. Nobody cares. <laughs> right, right. We're all going through it, and uh, and sometimes we're at each other's throats. I, I did. Uh, I did almost stab a ranger in the eye with my fork because he, he took my smoothie, and that was because of my withdrawals and my own attitude yeah, and issues. It's a smoothie. But... Let's not fuck with that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sad hard part, to come by. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, the sad part is it's such a wonderful place, and you, you can keep coming back well, at least a couple of times before they have to just find a better place for you <clears throat> or a better fit. But unfortunately, you know, people just they come there, they get the help they need, or they get the help they want, maybe. But sometimes not all the help they need. Some people just they need something more, man. And they go out and, and they kill themselves still. Yeah, and uh, it's just sad. It is, and especially with the level that Warriors Heart offers, because it's not just treatment. Um, they give you outlets too, whether it be training dogs, doing woodworking, doing metalworking. They try to give you an outlet too, um, but it doesn't always reach everybody. It yeah. didn't reach me entirely. I'm, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm entirely healed or anything like no, that. No, of course not. Um, but it also gets into the issue where. So PTSD itself, right? Is it really a disease? You know what I mean? PTSD, the way I look at it, is it's a natural response to unnatural circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the way the world's going right now, uh, we come back into this bubble and we end up in this dark place and it's essentially because we don't have a mission anymore. We don't have a purpose, there's no drive. Exactly. It's like, oh, okay, I got all these capabilities, now I'm useless. And now everybody alienates me. And now everybody thinks I'm crazy. But now we got pandemics going on. we got riots going on and everything else like that. And the tide's changing, right? Those same people that were calling you crazy and everything are looking to you for advice. 
and being like, hey, okay, so how do I prepare for the future? How do I deal with such and such situation? It's like, okay, all of a sudden now we're an asset because the environment around you all have changed. So did I ever really have a disease or a disorder in the first place? Or is it just about my environment and the way my peers look at me? Well, you know, according to the DSM, there's a certain statistical likelihood of responses that they cluster together and they call PTSD. And it's shown with a certain likelihood. I don't know exactly what that likelihood it is, but it is sufficient to be able to diagnose that. Now, is it really what they're diagnosing? I don't know. I mean, there's some people that not all PTSD is created equal. Some people are, are very heavily traumatized, right? And the T in PTSD is just trauma. Mm-hmm. That can come from anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It's just the circumstances that you, you don't have to be. You don't even have to witness it. You can just hear about it. That's one of the criteria. It's just how you respond to it. It's a natural response that's relevant to the individual. Yeah, that, that's actually why I'm careful about some of the stories I tell. Is because of that secondary PTSD. You tell your mother that you went through some crazy experience. Yeah, and that's gonna start like, the hell. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's gonna give her trauma. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, and there's different levels to it. Um, there's certain aspects of. PTSD that, I mean, some people just, like I said, like I do, shut down. I mean, it, it just shuts you down, you shell up, and, uh, and, and that's a really bad thing. And then you have the opposite response where something happens and you get that fight response and you react and overreact and maybe yell or, or, or start throwing fists or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, I mean, there are those extremes, um, but it's such a convoluted, crazy subject. And um, the fact that we're starting to accept some of these more fringe sciences and address some of these issues and, and that are helping MDMA truly. dude they're showing half there's just one study I gotta put it on the, the show notes but I forget exactly how many sessions they did but half the people did not qualify for PTSD after like a four or eight week pilot study that's incredible yeah that's amazing yeah and it's all about, I guarantee it's all about perspective yeah like everything is about how you're looking at the situation that maybe stressed you out, traumatized you, whatever else. It's about where you're laying the blame. Is this my fault? Is it my fault that, that all these people died, that, that this person was traumatized, that this person was abused, that whatever happened? Um, there's a lot that goes into it. And yeah. if you can simply adjust your focus, maybe take the broader spectrum, maybe take an outsider's perspective, it can change your entire life. And sometimes... These substances are useful in just doing that specific. Exactly. Yeah. Be careful not to go and find it on your own and use it recreationally. Like no. it's again with the MDMA, you have a male and a female therapist that are there to talk you through it, and you get multiple experiences over time. So it's it's very well controlled and very well done. My question for you is, how do you deal with that stuff now? How do you deal with your your personal issues, your mental issues? So, I mean, there are several coping mechanisms, you know. I, I try to stay as busy as I can. I find when I sit around, my mind starts to go crazy. My yeah. mind's always going a million miles a minute. I get ahead of myself. I start rambling in my own head. I have conversations with myself, like, sure. constantly, unless I'm doing something else. Even if it's something as stupid, playing video games, I'll do that just to escape the environment I'm in, doing my woodworking doing a job trying to I was doing charity until uh, the pandemic hit that was a good focus trying to help other people volunteering absolutely um, what you're doing is a great outlet because what you're doing right now is is it, it, it accomplishes things you yeah, know? of course man um, it puts perspectives out there which is essentially what we're talking about and heals in the first place yeah so that's super important um, and then just I mean 
when you get into that dark place, you just have to have that ability to reach out and be like, okay, I know where I'm at. I recognize this hole that I'm in. I need to reach out to somebody that's been here and might be able to get me. So this is my last question. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice prior to joining the Navy, knowing everything you know now, what would you say? That's hard, man. That's hard because a lot of the negative experience I feel like gave me good insights to move forward and be able to teach other people. So, I mean, I'd love to bring certain people back from the dead. You know, I'd love to do things like that. But essentially, you know, the things that happen, sometimes I think that they're supposed to happen. You know, uh, there is that higher power and I do recognize that there's some kind of... I have psychics come to me on a regular basis. It's a weird thing, man. They find me... They tell me this stuff. It always comes true. They know where you live. I, I literally have this one that like tells me he's going to be an advisor at some point in the future. That he's supposed to serve as an advisor for some going on in the future. And I mean, he, this is a man that predicted the marathon bombing and like all this weird stuff and it bugs you out. So I, there's a there's a higher power. I don't I don't have the arrogance to try and give it a name. I don't ha- I don't I'm not biased against other people that do, but there's something. And uh, as long as I recognize that and, and have faith that something's going to come through, you know, that helps a lot. Dude, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. It was good seeing you again. Thank you for having me over here. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to, to take part, man. Climb four. We're going to get y'all rolling, get these guys help, <laughs> get this stuff going. Hell yes. Yeah, we do everything we can, man. Yeah, and we need your help. So thank you very much. I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please read the show notes for any links or other amplifying information mentioned or used in the production of today's show. Climb 4 is a registered 501c3. To purchase merchandise, contribute donations, or to apply for hiking camping equipment, or to send us a message, please visit Climb 4 at www.climb-4.org. That's www.climb-4.org. And if you're a veteran and wish to be on the podcast, please send an email to info at climb-4.org. Once again, that's I-N-F-O at C-L-I-M-B-4.org. See you next time.